Hello, and welcome back to Rewildology, the show all about conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Before we dive into today's show, I have a big announcement for you all. For months, I've been hearing from you all that I really need to design some merch for the podcast. Well, I'm happy to report that I've finally delivered. Head on over to rewildology.com backslash shop to check out the first round of Rewildology merch. When you buy, you'll feel great knowing that I spent a long time picking out the most sustainable options available through my supplier, and at least 10% of proceeds are donated to the show's conservation partners. It is a total win-win. Be sure to tag Rewildology on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, any of the social media platforms in your swag, and I will be so excited to share. Can't wait to see your awesome photos. All right, that's all for announcements. Let's get to today's show. I'm sure if you're active on social media or like to watch nature documentaries, you've seen footage of adorable baby rhinos from orphanages that lost their mother due to poaching. You get all the warm and fuzzies inside seeing how well they're being cared for and feel inspired to help these babies. Very rarely, though, do we take a step back and think about why they're orphaned. What happened to their mother? What happened to the person that shot her? How were they persecuted? Were they ever persecuted? Why did they do it? That's the topic of today's show. In this episode, I'm chatting with Andre Roberts, the founder of Enviro Crime Solutions. Formerly an IT corporate 9-to-5-er, Andre found his passion for wildlife crime forensics while volunteering at Kruger National Park during his summer holiday. Instead of washing cars and pushing papers, he was asked to carry a rifle and bring in the South African police force to process outstanding rhino poaching cases. It was exhausting work, but he finished the cases and his new life was born. Andre transitioned out of his corporate career and became an expert wildlife forensic investigator. He is one of the best in the world at what he does, and it's all for his love of alive and thriving rhinos. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, then you're well aware that we're not scared to talk about uncomfortable or controversial topics, and today is one of those shows. I want to give you a special warning that Andre and I talk in depth about his work, and some stories are difficult to hear. They were hard for me to listen to while we were chatting, but I'm very grateful he shared them with us to give us a glimpse of how important his work is. All conservation roles are vital if we are going to keep rhinos alive. Okay, I'll stop talking now. On to my conversation with Andre. Thank you so much, Andre, for coming on. Cannot wait to get into your very cool story here because, again, I've not met anyone that does what you do. And you have a very unique role in conservation, which so excited to explore. So, but before we get that, before we get to EnviroCrime Solutions, before we get to all of your amazing work you're doing today, you have a whole story that led up to it. And to put all the pieces together and to really go to move forward in the conversation, tell me about how all of your work came to be, because I know it's quite a winding path. All right. So um, thank you for, for having me, Krista. Um, it's really a privilege meeting people with a similar passion in life, conservation. And then it's really what it is about for us. But um, yeah, okay. So 
I come from a, a technology background. I used to be an IT systems architect. So I've got a lot of qualifications in IT. I'm a Cisco engineer, those kind of things. And I did the nine to five, made a lot of money, you know, the, the, the standard office job. Actually worked for the government in, in development agencies, you know, doing networks on, on large scale and those kind of things. Anyway, I've always loved the bush. I've always loved animals. My wife always says that I've got two wives. I've got her and then I've got my dogs. So, uh, um, so um, yeah, um, yeah, that's debatable. But anyway, anyway, so what happened is that a friend of mine and myself wanted to, you know, do our little bit for for conservation. Now, in South Africa, we have a December holidays. It's kind of like the United States summer holiday. Basically, the country almost sucks down roughly from middle December up until the first week of January over the Christmas period. And it is summer year, so most companies close down or go down to skeleton staff and so on. So what we did is uh, we knew some of the guys in in Skakuza, it's the main camp or town in, in in the Kruger National Park, and we knew these guys, and they worked they work on anti poaching, environmental crimes investigations, and that kind of thing. So we found them and said, look, this is what we want to do. We want to offer up uh, two weeks of our of our holiday. Just to do our little part, just to do what we can. Now, honestly, when we, when we set out, we had this idea of, um, you know, we'd be doing the menial work, you know, sort of catching up with filing and, uh, and you know, wash the cars, wash the vehicles so they can get along with the, with the important stuff of actually protecting animals. So what happened is they called us and said, listen, can you shoot? Which was, which was a, a bit of a strange, a strange uh, request. We said yes, obviously, being being South African guys, you know, and, and sort of being macho and whatever you have. Um, then they said, no, you have to come for a test. And uh, we went for a for a field test at the shooting range in, in Kruger National Park. So, so basically, um, what it does is to they tested you on moving targets, that kind of thing. We passed the test, fortunately. Um, and when we pitched up the December, they uh, gave each of us a gun, a rifle, and said, all right, here's a list of outstanding rhino carcasses that haven't been processed. So our job was then to get the South African police members, police force members, up to the actual crime scene and back to their vehicles. So you have to understand that there's... There's no logistics here. You don't go to an address. It's basically a GPS coordinate in the bush. So you drive up to the closest road, get out on foot. You have to walk and then obviously find your way back to where your vehicle was. So our job was, in essence, to stop these guys from getting eaten by lions or getting trampled by elephant or, you know, running into an angry buffalo or whatever. So... What happened is I went to my first poaching crime scene and and literally I, I know the exact date, time, minute, the exact when I knew my life had changed. Mm. When I saw that first crime scene, I knew this is what I need to do with my life. It ended up in that first December, we did a total of 176 poaching scenes. So it's actually 208 rhinos. Some scenes have two rhinos on them two or three, actually, depending on, on what happened there. 
it was the, it was the, I've never worked that hard in my entire life for those two weeks. I actually lost so much weight that <laughs> I saw my neighbor um, that lives next to me. He drove past. He was in the park for the day, just looking at animals. Uh, and, and I pulled him over because now I now I'm like a, I was a, a cop. I pulled him over and asked for his permit, and he didn't know who I was. I'd lost so much weight because of walking literally 20, 30 miles a day that um, in the bush and carrying all this equipment and things. Yeah, and then when we were done there, it was the first year that they've known where we finished the year without any outstanding carcasses. And of course, the people there being who they are and the kind of people that they were then just said, you know that you are here, you know that you're here permanently now. You got a job. <laughs> Part of the family, and uh, and that's how it happened. And that was that was eight years ago. And and since then, that's been my my life. I started with my job having a sort of exit plan, and then three years ago, I quit my my corporate job, started the nonprofit, and this is what we do. We've obviously branched out a bit into education of of youths and and sort of building the conservationists of tomorrow. But that's the story behind what I do, and that's how I got into it. And um, fortunately, I've got a very understanding wife. So I came to her after about a year and I said to her, you know that I'm really unhappy in my work. And she said to me, I know. I, I know and I've seen what this there does to you and, and, what, and how happy you are doing this. So we've sold all our things and really uh, minimized our lives, uh, simplified it. We live in a small little uh, uh, cottage on a farm now, but we're dead happy. Obviously, being in a non-profit, we're quite not broke, but money is not as big as what it was in IT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we're happy. We're extremely happy. I, I, I couldn't have wished for a better life than, than doing what I do. Mm. And that's how I got into it. Oh, that's beautiful, Andre. Let's go back. Since I don't know anybody or very few people that have been on a crime scene like you have, what was the roller coaster of emotions that you must have gone through? Like, what was the feelings like that first call that you said you remember so vividly? How did it feel for you? Take us through that. Yo, Brooke. <laughs> you have to excuse me. I'm a pretty emotional guy. Um, okay. Absolute horror. That's the first thing that strikes you is how somebody can just kill something a creature like that just for a toy that was the that was the first and then this overwhelming feeling of you know what over my dead body mm. you know if if i can stop some of them this is what i'm gonna do it, it it just it gives meaning to your life look look through the years i've done more than 400 poaching scenes now so i've seen a lot of dead rhino and poaching scenes. We've arrested people. It's it's crazy what we do out there. And obviously, there's certain ones that stay with you. The, uh, there was one very specific one that that is that I remember as clear as daylight. We had a list of of. There's always a list. There's always lots of them. People think we lose two or three rhinos a year. We we lose about four hundred, five hundred a year. Um, in Kruger you know, alone, or yes, in Kruger alone, it used to be a thousand. But we, we with through three interventions from Sandbox and those kind of guys and a lot of people working together, they've brought it down a lot now. They, they do amazing work in the park. But just to give you an idea, we, we were we were working a scene where, where they shot a rhino 
a black rider. So there was a lot of activity. I remember, I mean, it's clear as daylight. There was a lot of activity because there was a calf, uh, a baby, and the baby ran. And there was a lot of worry because there's lions everywhere. And we were scared the lions were going to take the calf out. All right. So we had guys in the area moving. But anyway, our job was to go and process the carcass because we, we, we had these guys. We, we caught them. So what happens is we process it as fast as possible to get that evidence and linking those guys to that evidence. So I remember I, I traced the blood trail for approximately 400 meters. And um, obviously we knew where the carcass was, but we, our job is to paint a picture of what happened in that, in that whole scene. I walked up the mountain or the hill, traced about 400 meters. What's that? 450 yards where I could trace the blood trail. So she'd been running with that wound. So you could see it was quite a clear trail of, of blood. She'd fallen in a road which where she she lost energy because she lost so much blood and these guys started hacking out her face with an axe while she was alive all right so how we know that is because at that stage on the road you could see but the blood squirted which meant her heart was still pumping then she got up and she moved probably another 30 yards and then fell then it was just too much and they killed her so at that stage, from what we could gather, they, 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 they hit her spine off with an axe. So they broke the spine with an axe and then proceeded to still chop the horn out while she was alive because of the amount of blood that we found on the scene. You know, it, it became a little bit of a blur. They, we, cut the, we cut open the, the carcass. It's, a, it's in, in, in nature conservation terms, because it's an animal, it's called a necropsy. We, we did the necropsy, which is, which is similar to a human autopsy. But our job is now to find the, the bullet, the, the actual projectile. And um, I just remember there was, there was so much blood that, that the, the, I was standing in blood so much that it ran into the top of my boots. Oh, my God. So my boots are waterproof. But it actually came around the tops, and 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 as I was walking, it was going, you know. But it was blood. We found the bullets, but I, I just remember I, I drove to the nearest camp and I found I found my my supervisor, and just said to him, "I'm done for the day." And he and he immediately knew, and he just said, "That's fine. Don't worry. You can carry on whenever." And we went to the to the pool, the public pool, and there's these showers, you know, communal or public ablution facilities. We washed off a little bit in the shower, then climbed in the pool. And an elderly gentleman, I don't know, he must have seen what was happening when we came into the camp. And he said to us, could you just come over to my place? He was camping. He's a, he's a tourist. Came over and he gave us a drink and calmed the nerves a little bit. But, but I mean, it, it never leaves you. It never, ever leaves you. I mean, there's, after doing 400, you remember those, those ones. There's, there's some specific ones that stay with you. And then, um, obviously, well, obviously, I say obviously because it happened to me. At one stage, I was working in the park, and I thought I was having a heart attack. Went to the doctor, and they've got very good doctors there. And um, he did all the tests, and he said to me, no, you're, you're not having a heart attack. You need to go. They sent me. They actually flew me out of the helicopter to the main town. And uh, when I got there, I was to my surprise, I went straight to a psychologist and ended up that I've got PTSD or mm. had PTSD. 
we worked through that, fortunately. But I was uh, I was banned from going to the bush for four months, which was terrible. I was down to admin duty, but that's that's what we do. It's it's you remember very specific ones and and how it how it affects you and and I remember cutting open a, a rhino, and uh, because when when they get shot and they lie in the sun, uh, they kind of bloat. But when we, the second I cut open, I realized there's something different. And a, 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 a fetus came out, a little, I mean, it must have been about two weeks from being born. It was so close to being born. And they killed the mom and they took the horns. And I remember standing there with, I mean, hardened special ops rangers. And we were all bawling. We were absolutely crying which was probably good because you, you get the emotion out and you're not like Rambo. But I mean, I mean, these guys, they get shot at every day and we were all standing there and just crying and crying. And but we got them as well. We got those guys as well. So good. Um, mm. at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for really digging deep there with me because I think that we all need to hear that. We all need to understand what it takes for all of us in this field to, yeah, essentially get this problem to hopefully end. So it takes work from people like you that have the courage to do this so that we can still have rhinos on this planet and still bring those people that need to be brought to justice. And because without you, it would never happen. They would just it would keep coming back and keep coming back. So let, let's yeah. get let's get into the logistics then. Yeah. So so how does this actually work for you? So do you get a phone call from somebody in the park? Like where do you step in to start the actual forensic crime investigation? All right. So okay. The old process, right, we will, we will be called by somebody, whether that be Sandbox or somebody. And we work, remember, we were completely volunteer, so we, we, we can't speak on their behalf. But most of the work happens in Kruger National Park. When their caseloads get too much or, you know, their guys need to take leave, they've got things like, like training that they go to. And when they're gone, we will typically help out. But it is comp what we do for them is completely volunteer work. So we don't get paid by them. We do have contracts with them in terms of just being an, an internship contract. So fortunately, they cover us for, for any incidents in the field, you know, legal, medical, those kind of things. You know, so, but we fall under their auspices. Once we go into the park, we abide by their rules, their regulations, those kind of things, right? But we do that with the with the donations that people give us with the funding and out of our own pockets a lot of the time with our with the money but so in south african law you have to be they have to open a criminal case all right so when i go out there there's typically four, at least four people in my team myself which is which my my primary responsibility is the safety of that team it's my job to get them to that scene and get them back to their vehicles without being killed. Now, if you if you understand how Kruger works, it's lion, leopard, uh, buffalo, elephant, 
rhino, unfortunately, you won't believe it, but the closest animal I've actually come to having to shoot because of danger is a rhino, which is which is a little bit a little bit. Uh, um, I'll tell you, but they remind ask me about my nickname, but I just remember like I thinking my word. I, I'm here to protect you. I don't want to kill you. <laughs> you know, I don't want to kill you. But anyway, my job is to get the guys there. That's my primary responsibility. And because we're in the field, we do a necropsy in the field. So the bullet will typically be inside the animal. So we will do things. We've got metal detectors and pinpoint metal detectors. So we get a rough idea of where the bullet is inside the animal or outside, depending. We've got scanners for the floor and whatever. And then it becomes literally becomes a CSI scene. It, it's very much like you see on TV, except we don't have cool computers and we don't drive Hummers. And my boss doesn't <laughs> no Hummers. Like, my, my boss doesn't do one-liners with his with his shades and you know that kind of thing. Um, but pretty much like CSI, except the victim being a, a rhino and not being a human. So we will typically do blood spatter analysis. Um, we cut open the animal. We have to kind of paint a picture of what happened. So we will figure the entry angle. Did they shoot him? Did the animal run? Did they, was it a literal a kill shot? You know, was it a brain shot? So did it just die there or did it run from somewhere else? And then we obviously look for evidence. We look for specifically ballistics, looking for, for the actual projectiles. And then the casings. The, the gun gun casings is actually, believe it or not, that's we see as I've got it wrong on TV, but the actual casing is worth more to us than the actual bullet mm. because of sciences and things. We can actually tie that to a very specific rifle and all those kind of things. Then what happens is one of my members will also be a South African police member, a detective, and he will he will make the docket or the or the actual case out there in the bush. He has to write um, because he has to open the criminal case in the police system. And with him is a police forensics guy who does things like fingerprinting. And he actually takes the actual physical items that we find into evidence. He books it into evidence, seals it in the evidence bags, those kind of things. The, the difference is that these guys are all trained to do domestic crimes, you know, with people. So when they come into where we are, they have no idea about the bush. So it's our job to get them out there to do the necropsy, cut open the animal. And it's our job to say, okay, looks like a hard shot, or you can see the damaged path where the bullet ran. So they hit it in the lungs or they hit it in the brain or, you know, to kind of build that docket when it goes to court. So that's what we do. So, so it's not the romantic side. We, we always say the romantic side is the little baby rhinos that you see that people save in it. And, and I mean, it's awesome. I mean, we do get to work with them, fortunately. But our, our side of the work is the ugly side. We see the very ugly side of, of, of poaching. But it's a critical job. Because without the evidence that we gather, they won't be able to tie these guys in court. You know, so so we we're at the back end of the of the process, and unfortunately, often overlooked. And then um, also, unfortunately, a lot of the work that some of the guys do is is clandestine in nature. They they can't share their faces in the media. You can't tell people about what you're doing because all these cases are still in court. And if the if it gets out into the media, then it, it compromises court cases. So a lot of the stuff that we do is unfortunately a bit behind the scenes and. And uh, we can't talk too much about about specific cases and then share info on social media and those kind of things. 
Yeah. Which totally makes sense. I mean, you're in crime. You're like the Rhino CSI guy. Like you are, this is exactly what you do. And just, just out of curiosity, what is the success rates if for lack of better term of how many rhino poaching cases are persecuted? And I'm sure there's still so many going on. I'm sure it's a very long process, but, but how often does someone actually commits the crime and they have to pay? Right. So it's, it's, it's actually a, a two-edged sword here. It's a, it's a double question here. You must now imagine, when we go out there, if that guy has picked up his, the, the, the casings that eject from the gun, if, and they know, they know what we're looking for. They're not stupid, you know. If they bother to pick it up, we've got virtually no evidence. All right. Also, there's a difference between putting a rifle on the scene and actually putting the person on the scene. So even if we catch, if I get a, let's say I get around and it goes into evidence and we catch a guy with that rifle, I need to be able to prove that that guy was there with that rifle. Remember? That so yeah, it's very, it's very tricky, but so in effect, when we do go to court, we've got an, a very successful conviction rate. But it's because we know what is required to actually get a guy to court. Very often, what happens is um, a big part of our job is to, is to establish uh, modus operandi. All right. So we will give information through. We've got people working in police intelligence, those kind of things. So, you know, through sheer volume of experience, really, more than anything else. We will we will get to a crime scene, and then we will say, "All right, guys, listen. You need to look at that crime scene that we did two days ago because these are the same people. the The modus operandi is the same, and that assists the investigators into in actually tying these cases together and being able to combine evidence. What you see on television." Um, where they put a guy's fingerprints into a system and 10 minutes later it pops up with an address, that does not exist in Africa. Mm. It doesn't happen like that. You know, there's no crime lab here where you can take a bullet and look at the markings and then say, oh, but this gun was used over there and over there. It doesn't exist here. So what happens is if we can say the, the, the modus operandi of that one and this one looks the same, then they are able to compare those two cases and, and actually tie those two cases together. And very often, these poachers are, are just repeat offenders. They just keep coming back and keep coming back and keep coming back. But at the end of the day, when we do catch them, at least you don't catch them on one scene. You can tie them to, to six, seven, eight, sometimes 20 scenes. You know? So it's a long process. And it's, it's sometimes this backbreaking work that... that Sometimes feels like it doesn't have success, but but we do we do make a difference, and it's all necessary work that we that we do. Uh, yeah, yeah, super necessary. Completely agree with that. Yeah. I think the next thing, I think that just makes total logical sense to talk about, and you and I chatted about it for quite a bit on our call the other day. Is why people poach. And I really want to bring the human element into this because even though there are quote unquote bad guys in here, there are true bad guys and there are people that are just trying to feed their families and they're all mixed in this awful crime 
that unfortunately beautiful lives are lost and that, and that can go either way. That's both human and rhino lives, unfortunately more rhino lives. But um, can, can you talk about that? What are the motives here and who are these people that are doing it? Okay, so you have to understand that I am, I am grossly generalizing here, all right? When I say 96% of the time, you're looking at a syndicated crime. All right, now, that crime is pure greed. Literally, let's say a guy gets $100,000 for a rhino horn. All right. Or the, the, the crime syndicate boss gets 100000 And look, the, the figures keep changing, but let's assume it's $100,000. Literally, the one horn pays for a house. Next horn pays for a nice truck. The next horn pays for a house. Next one pays for a car for the wife. You know, it, it, it's just endless. And these guys are in it for pure, pure greed. Now, unfortunately, you do get the very odd occasion where someone from, and once again, it's, it's a generalization, but typically from Mozambique, all right? It's not always 100%, but typically from, a, and it's a very poor country. That guy will come into the park trying to get a rhino horn. All right, now you have to understand that where he comes from, it's so bad that in the first place, if he gets captured in South Africa, if he gets caught, the life in prison is better than his life because he gets three meals a day, gets a warm place to sleep. You know, with the dangers that go along with being in a South African prison, it's still better than where he lives. If he dies, it is literally a case of his family having one less mouth to feed, one less mouth to worry about. So you have this situation where it's it's almost a win-win for them. They can't, they, you know, there's nothing to lose. Their life is so bad that whatever happens, whatever the outcome is coming to South Africa and, or coming to the park and poaching. But but having said that, that is, that is minimal of cases, but unfortunately it does happen. What happens though is that the criminal syndicates exploit that because of that poverty. They literally enable people like that to bring them or to lure them into coming to poach. You know, they exploit that situation. So the actual poacher on the floor, on the ground, I mean, if we catch him, there's literally hundreds waiting to take his place because of that exploitation of that situation by the criminal syndicates. You have to remember the criminal syndicates as well. We don't deal with, with poaching syndicates. Poaching is just a part of what these people do. These guys are into drug trafficking, human trafficking, cash in transit heists. They bomb ATMs to steal the cash. They rob jewelry stores. Literally, it's like a business. Um, they will go for, for most reward for the least risk. So if there's a lot of pressure on, on the cash in transit heist, if the police focuses on that, then they simply move on to the next thing that's that's the most profitable for the for the for the least risk. So so you have to understand. Um, I'm in the bush. I work in the bush. So fortunately, that's not my not my big big uh, job. But we do work with people whose whose work that is on a daily basis, and and it's quite scary because these guys are literally like a mafia. They won't have they don't they won't have any qualms 
in in killing you if, if they think that you that you're getting in the way of their business. It's just like the, like we see on movies, and it's just like like a like a Russian mafia mob kind of situation. Yes, thank you so much for exploring that with me and just explaining that for all of us that might not know the pieces that go in all of this. And I know that you and I talked about it last time, but I saw that um, the one last horn, like last horn of Africa film yes. that recently came out. And one of the top crime syndicates in that film was recently murdered and that it was almost yeah. like a massive celebration across yeah. South Africa and anyone who watched the film or anyone who knew, because from what I understood, right, just rhino poaching was just one of the things that he was involved in. Right. Yeah. And he had that big, yeah. beautiful house that they showed film of. And I mean, it's actually, he's got five or six of them. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And then also to explain, you know, these, these gentlemen that just have no other option when they're coming from these poor areas. And it's like, I yeah. could completely change the outcome of my family's life if I, if I succeed. Yeah. And if not, then I won't at least be a burden on them. Like yeah. that is real. That is so real. Yeah. And then these people that prey upon them. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, I mean, that's, that's a big part of, of what we do as a, as a nonprofit. The, the social economic situation, especially in the park, uh, around the park is not good. You know, so being where we are and being as small as we are as a nonprofit, we can't do everything. But what, what we do is where we can, we, we do education on, on explaining to, to guys on the ground to the community that these rhinos are actually worth a lot more lives in the long term than what it is in the short term, killing it and, and getting the horn. You know, and it's a big part of what we do is that that education, educating the the communities around the park, and and, and creating that appreciation for, for what wildlife can do in terms of tourism, in terms of, of of job creation, and that kind of things. It's challenging because because the the reality is that it's not that easy. It's not that easy to create jobs out of out of conservation, or specifically just looking after. There's a lot of things that have to fall into place, but we also focus, especially with the youth, sort of sort of middle school and up. You know, we, we call it building tomorrow's conservationists today. Just it's just to, you know install that love of nature and yeah, trying to get that done. But it's um, challenging, but it's very rewarding. Very very rewarding. Yeah, I'm sure. So let's let's actually explore that a little more. What is this education program? that you've built and how does it work? How does it focus? How do you pick students to go through it? And, and what are you finding as your program continues on? Okay. So look, there's a lot of guys that do great work around the parks. There's a lot of NGOs. Sandbox does it themselves as well as part of community outreach and those kind of things. There's a lot of guys that, that take kids into the park. And, and for the day and, and teach them a little bit about the park and, and what it stands for and all those kind of things. So we felt that, that that area was very much covered. And we wanted to have a bit more of a focused approach on things. So what we did is to, we will typically go out to school. We still do the, the rhino poaching talk 
we show them what happens at a poaching scene and and, and um, how it's processed. You know, um, fortunately, the, the the topic allows lends itself to a lot of questions. So we always there. You know, we book off an hour. And we're always there for two or three hours with all the questions and things. <laughs> Then, then what we what we've done is we've spoken to the district school system, the, the the district managers and so on, and we get five or six pupils a year. Okay, so of that, eighty percent of them have to be girls, you know, because because it, it's it's just one of those things that girls are left behind a little bit, especially in South Africa, actually across the world, girls are left behind a little bit. And we look for, for students that have, have already installed love of nature, that they actually work, you know, things like mathematics, sciences, um, geography, those kind of things. We don't specifically look for points because that's not the goal. We're not looking for the clever ones. We're looking for ones that show an interest and in, in, that is willing to work. All right. So what we do then is we, we approach them and we say, right, this is the program that we have. We want to help you through your next three years of school. We'll take you with us. Um, we'll show you the park. We'll show you some of the inner workings. We arrange for them to, to see maybe on a private game farm when they do a game capture, when they perhaps, when the vets dart one of the animals, an elephant or a rhino, or a, and they go with us and help they they get to at the very least keep the animal cool in the sun with water or hold up the, the the saline drip or something you know just be a part of it of the day but what we do is we do throw the ball back at them a little bit where we say they have to keep on working at their school points and their effort in school and then what happens is when they finish school we call it matric it's basically your last year of school we actually assist them and we obviously keep track of where they've been, what they've done, their points, whatever. And then we assist them with bursaries for, for university, specifically to go into um, veterinary sciences, genetics, those kind of things to go and study. What's very, very nice is that the university now accepts the work that we do with them as their practical that they would have done once they were actually in university. So it's, it's actually the wrong way around. They first do practical, then they go to the class. But we find that it helps a lot because when they're in the class, they, they actually know what you're talking about. The, you know, the infield experience is, is more valuable than any nature book can, can tell you. And then what we do is we obviously assist them with big companies that, that do scholarships and those kind of things to help them study further. We've actually had our first, it's now, it's now three years that we've been going. And we've had our first um, girl that's now studying veterinary pharmacology. I wasn't, I was not aware that that was actually a, a study you could do, but apparently there is a pharmacist for vets that you can study for. So yeah, we, we're very proud of what we what we achieve, and and it's very focused. But when we thought about the program, that's what we wanted to do is just to be a bit more focused than your general. Just take a whole lot of people to the park because there's a lot of guys that already do that, and they do a great job of it. So it didn't need any more input. We, we just wanted to focus a little bit more. Yeah. Talk about finding a need and filling it in your own <laughs> creative way of, of contributing yeah, yeah, to yeah, the area yeah, around. Yeah, this is all about making an impact. You know, resources are a bit limited. So you have to, you have to sort of try and make the most with what you have. You know? So that's what, what our aim was when we, when we were thinking about the process. 
Mm. And just from their perspective, so I'm assuming then they are coming out with you on these forensic scenes. Is that what they're doing as a practical? Yeah, we will. They will come out with us to a scene or two, but that's not the aim is not to turn them into forensic people. We, we expose them to a wide variety because um, got a lot of friends in the private reserves around the park. Um, you remember you have, you have the Kruger national park, which is controlled by South African national parks. And then you have a lot of parks that's attached to it, private parks. And there's no fences between them. The animals can roam. And often these guys, they also become part of their corporate social responsibilities. They allow us to take these, these kids with us when they do specifically veterinary things. So we, we, we do try and focus on on the live animals, not too much on, on the gory death side of things to engender that love of, of nature and, and that it's not all about having to fight every day, but that it, that there's actual jobs that can give you joy. And, that, you know, because it, it does kind of take a, a special kind of personality to keep on doing what we're doing. And and especially with us working a lot with girls, it helps to uh, to be on the life side instead of the death side too much. Yeah, yeah. Understandable, absolutely. I mean, that's why I respect what you do so much. I don't know if I could personally do what you do. Like listening to your stories, and I'm a very passionate person, and so while I try to keep my emotions in check, sometimes they just don't. And just, I'm just you taking me through that story. Like I was like feeling it with you and just to think of doing that all the time. Like that's why your work is so important and it needs to be shouted to the world, what you're doing so that people can understand. It's not just about those really cute orphanages that we see that are taking all of these rhinos and elephants in, which that work is insanely important, but they would just be overflowing if it wasn't people like you that are taking the actual crime syndicates to justice to stop it from the source. Well, speaking of source, I think that's the perfect segue. What do you think in your experience, having done this for this many years, do you think is the solution if, or if that's too strong of a word, what do you think will really help curve the issue of no. rhino poaching? Look, uh, look, Brooklyn, that's also a multi-pronged answer. You have to remember in the East, for argument's sake, um, we're talking Vietnam, China, those places. You have to remember that the that the that the the beliefs that they have, you know, that rhino horn is a is an aphrodisiac that it can cure cancer that it can, those beliefs come for three three thousand years. You know, it's not something that's just popped up lately with with some fad. You know, so the the unfortunate answer is that it is. It's going to take a worldwide solution to stop it, and I know I know what your next question is going to be about the about the uh, the legalizing of the sale of rhino horns, and and I have to I have to stress that this is my personal opinion. It is not official policy by the South African government or the police or anybody. It's just my personal opinion. The process of legalizing the sale worked for Ivory. So, so in effect, what happens every three years with ivory is that there is a controlled sale by CITES of ivory, which then floods the market. 
and it helps to control the poaching of elephants. All right, if you did the same for rhino horn, apparently, from what I understand, the, the actual demand for rhino horn is way more than what the sale would ever cover. But selling rhino horn legally will change the scene a little bit because the first thing is the price will drop. Now, unfortunately, in, in the field that we are in, uh, there's, no, there's no historical data for what we do. A lot of the things that we do is we see it first time. We, we can work on some predictions, but that's the best we can do. We don't have big models of what's, what it's going to do. But in general, if the price drops slightly, the actual risk versus reward of, of, of going after a rhino horn becomes a lot bigger the risk becomes a lot bigger for less money. Whereas currently you get a lot of money for the same risk, which makes it a bit more tempting. So in my personal opinion is that if you allow the legal sale of rhino horn, it will change the way that, that or the risk factor. It will make it a lot more, a lot more risk versus reward than what it is currently. You must remember that rhino horn is a, is a renewable product. Rhino horns grow between six and 10 inches a year. So every four years, you could literally harvest a rhino horn. Having said that, not saying sell rhino horn just for the sake of selling it, but for the sake of saving a species, yes. Because a rhino without a horn is not really, it's not fair. You know, it's not like, oh, I've got rhinos, let me sell it and make some money. You know, it's not, it's, it's for the sake of saving a species. It's not simply for the sake of having rhino horn. But, but all in all, unfortunately, it's going to take a global change in thinking. I mean, um, apart from the, the generally known things of, of the people in the East using it for medicinal purposes, we, which it actually, unfortunately, scientifically has none. I mean, rhino horn is the same as your fingernails. If you think it's an aphrodisiac, Chew your nails and you should have the same effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so, um, so you, you, you actually said, um, uh, I can say what I want to, but my, my boss the other day came up with one in, in a speech actually where he said that it's actually been proven now that rhino horn is an aphrodisiac. It's been proven. You just have to strap it on. <laughs> you know? oh, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, apologies for that one. But, that was um, so good. I love it. <laughs> it's uh, it's um, it's for the mature audiences, but yeah. Um, so okay, so th there is some other things that's less than uh, in the East, Brunei, those countries. Unfortunately, rhino horn is a vanity item. Now. Just to give you an example, in the 80s, if your parents dropped you at school in the BMW, your family was like the rich ones, you know, and then it, then came the 90s and it was sort of the Magnum PI red Ferrari, you know, and then, then it shifted on and around the millennium, if you got dropped at school in the helicopter, your family was the family. Now what happens is there's so many guys with a yacht and a boat and a private plane and uh, this and that and the Bentley and the whatever, that they actually buy these things just to prove how rich they are. They have something like a coming of age uh, ceremony for, for boys when they turn 16, around about 16, and they will give them a jewel encrusted dagger and those kind of things. 
and they'll have the, the, the handle cut out of rhino horns simply to be able to say this, just the handle alone is $100,000. It's, and, and, and that is just wrong. And it's, there's going to have to be a mindset change. And it's unfortunately not just one country. It's, it's across the world. Look, there's, there's some guys that do great work in China. I don't know the bands and things, but there's apparently boy bands that are super popular and those kind of things. And they actually work very hard at, at, at educating youngsters to say, listen, there's nothing in this rhino horn. It's just... You know, it's an old belief that that isn't actually true. So, so there is a lot of work, especially amongst youngsters. But the, the question is, do we actually have a whole generation to of rhinos left before before they go extinct? For everybody to start realizing that that it's that it's not worth it. What is the next thing that's going to come along to show people exactly how rich you are? Is something else going to take over from the rhino rhino horn handle or statue in your house or? You know, so we don't have that much time, unfortunately. So it's it's a worldwide problem, and it's it's difficult. You know, we we can't get involved in those kind of things because we simply don't have enough hours in the day to to get involved beyond where we are. You know, so it's difficult. It's a very difficult question to answer. Yeah, and with everything we've talked about, what keeps you going? Why are you still hopeful? Brooke, I I don't want to get philosophical. You can (laughs) totally get philosophical if you want. Unfortunately, this is this is a this is a it's one that people ask me before. You know, when when if you're eighty and you're in your bed and you 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 got to look back at your life, okay, and you knew you could do something and you didn't. What would you think of yourself? What what would you be able to call yourself? That and of course my incredible love for anything alive. You know, I, I might draw the line at cockroaches and flies, but <laughs> but anything. My wife knows I I don't kill a spider. I I I'm absolutely anything. I I the um, Zulu guys here call me Ukulumani Zulwani. All right. And I keep wondering, I keep, why are you calling me this name? And then they say, you're the, you're the one that talks to the animals. And, and, it's, and it's a habit of mine. And I, I don't even think about it, but if we walk in the bush and there's an elephant, we, we cross paths with an elephant, then I will, I'll have the gun ready and, I'll, and then I'll talk to it and say, listen, we're just passing. We're not here to harm you. We're just going about our business. We're not going to bother you. Uh, but I talk and I don't even realize it. And, and it's just my nature. It's my, it's, uh, it's what I do is animals. It's, so is that um, your nickname that you told me to ask you about? Yeah. Is that the nickname? Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, they, they speak so fast and, you know, it's terrible that I don't understand the language fully, but yeah, that's what it means is um, the one that talks to the animals. <laughs> so, uh, um, and, and it's, it's subconscious, not subco- it's subconscious. I do it without actually realizing that I do. And when they walk with me, they just say, no, this guy talks. talks as if, as, like Dr. Doolittle or something, you know. But, but fortunately, none of them have answered me back, so I'm okay. I'm okay for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, just let yeah. her know. It's okay. I'm here. I'm not going to spook you. Yeah, We're good. Look, look, I'm, I'm a firm believer in it, especially things like elephants. And then I've seen it with my own eyes. 
if you stand in the open and you just talk calmly, they tend to, you know, they're careful, they'll watch you, but they don't do anything. But the second you start moving behind trees and, and you become, they immediately pick up on it and they want to. So when, they, when they're when there and you just speak calmly and you say, you know, whatever, you could probably sing a lullaby and it would have the same effect. But as long as you remain calm, they usually let you go by. And although they, they do, you, you remain careful because you know what they say, they, they don't study the same books that we do. So, uh, so, so you might one day get one that doesn't like your voice or something. So you're always careful, but it, but it does seem to help. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. That's good. That's the last thing you need is to bring out any other types of reinforcement oh, sure. or enforcement while you're on a crime scene. I'm sure that would not be yeah. fun. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So Let's let's talk about your nonprofit for a little while. We haven't we've talked about more of what you do, but not necessarily so much about your nonprofit. So let's talk about it. So tell me everything. What it's Enviro Crime Solutions. So what yeah. exactly what exactly do you do? I know we've talked a lot about that, but how what is like your nonprofit's goal, and how can we support your nonprofit from wherever we are in the world? Okay, so ultimately our goal, the primary goal to boil it down is to save Rhino. And unfortunately, not unfortunately, our work is to investigate poaching crime. All right, we, we wish that we could do the other stuff more often. We, we do get to work with the baby orphans and things uh, on occasion, which is awesome, it's always awesome. But it takes a lot of money to do what we do. We, we fund a lot of it out of pocket. Now, just to give you an idea, when I go to a crime scene, it's on average about 115 degrees Fahrenheit. That's um, Humidity is about 90% and upwards. It's hectic. And you have to remember, this is not forestry roads where there's crisscross roads everywhere. You know, I've taken Ford trucks into places that I don't think Ford meant for them to be, you know, <laughs> but they, I got them in and out. And... All of this forensic equipment, all of those things cost a ton of money and it needs to be done. Remember, in forensics, there's no reusables. You don't wear a pair of gloves and wear it at the next scene again. You can't, otherwise you, you've got cross-contamination and DNA mixing and all kinds of stuff. And obviously our vehicles have to be retrofitted with special tires, you know, because the African bush has an amazing amount of the weirdest, biggest thorns you could possibly imagine. So automatically you, you do it seven, eight, sometimes more plied tires, which cost a fortune. But you have to, otherwise you're just going to get stuck. It's actually a weird mixture because if we buy a, tr a truck, we call, you call it a truck, we call it a bucky, we want to buy the most basic one. We can't afford to break down with a whole lot of electronics in the bush. You need something where you can literally take pliers and a, and a strong piece of wire and sort of keep it going till you can get it to a mechanic. You know, you, you can't have a Land Rover with all the specs in the world and then you can't tow it or you can't fix it in the bush. If it's stuck there, it's going to stay there like one of those planes in, in, from the Second World War. It's just going to stay there until the bush takes over, you know. So so it's very odd. And then, and then we retrofit it with all, these, all this equipment. We have to, to have updated first aid 
training, weapons trainings, weapons ammunitions, uh, it, it just costs a ton of money. When we started the education part of things, it's because we wanted to do more, we could reach out to the community. So that part of our work is, is fortunately, it's not too expensive, but the, but the actual forensics costs a ton of money. And unfortunately, it needs to be done. It's, it's a sad thing that we found. We're not secretive about our work when it gets to, to actually showing people what we do. But we do find that, that because we're not on the romantic side of things, we do, we do get left behind a little bit when it gets to funding. You know, it's, it's difficult, especially in terms of exposure. For instance, let's assume a company buys me a truck. There's just an example. Put on that vehicle sponsored by so-and-so and so because the, the vehicle does work where we're involved with people that shouldn't see who sponsors us because they might just go and like burn down the, the office or something, you know. So it is very difficult. And we do find a lot of people are very, this is awesome. And then Monday when they get to the office, the, the almighty buck or the profit line takes priority again and they've forgotten about what they saw on the weekend. But, but that's it's something you get to learn to live with. I, I think I mentioned to you before that if we, if we get people that help us, we are very, very serious. And it's one of our big things is that if they can ever get here, hopefully post-COVID, that they need to come and see what we do, especially the bigger donors, companies that help us and those kind of things. Because, because coming from a corporate environment, I know exactly what it feels like to give something to corporate social responsibility and then not hearing anything or not knowing where your money's gone to or what your money is busy doing. You know, um, I know exactly. I've, I've been there. I've been on boards. I've been on, on expos and, and management committees. And you know how that works. So, so we work very hard to make sure that if someone helps us, they know where their contribution is going. We, we for argument's sake, we don't pay salaries. We do pay wages, but it's to a local local people only, um, incidental wages. But the salaries, I don't pay myself a salary from the from the nonprofit because if I donated money, I wouldn't want my money to go to someone's salary instead of to the actual goal that it that it needs to go to. So yeah, we do a lot of effort to to make sure that that if guys help us, they know exactly what what they get and what the money is being spent on. Mm. Yeah. And what we talked about, I would love for you to talk about this piece too, that it's kind of a little bit more difficult and pretty unique to what you do. It's you have no way to predict what you're even going to do in a year. Cause I, I know like a lot of grants yeah. and stuff, they're like, okay, we need numbers for us to be yeah. able to support you. Exactly. But in your line of work, that doesn't exist. Did I understand that correctly yeah. last time? Yes. Okay. So, so unfortunately, I mean, we fully understand where people come from. If you typically apply for a grant, let's, let's say the Bill Gates Foundation, the Gates Foundation, all right? If you apply for a grant for them, they want to have measurable objectives. And when we speak about measurable objectives, they want, to see, they want you to say, we are seeing... 5,000 kids, we are distributing 5,000 mosquito nets, we are building 10 clinics, you know, that kind of thing. But in our work, because it's poaching related, and a lot of our work happens based on poaching, it's very difficult to actually give a, 
a target of saying we will do at least 100 poaching scenes this year because we simply don't know. We simply don't know how many. And, and because it's diversified, I, I can do a poaching scene and the guy can be caught tomorrow, case closed next week. But I can do a scene that takes a year to, to investigate and to finish and to, you know, I, I might think that my part's finished and then in a year's time I get, I get subpoenaed to go to court because I was the guy that collected the evidence. And then I spend my day in court waiting to be called. We never do um, because, you know, they just subpoena you in, in case they can question some of your methods. But, uh, you know, so it's, it's very hard to do that to have tangible goals. And, and that makes it challenging because, because it requires people to actually trust that you are spending the money where you say you're spending it. The only way that we can actually then get back to people and, and prove that it was done that way is that we are super strict on our audits, on, on the openness of our books and all those kind of things. It's there for any donor to see because it's one of the only ways that we can actually ensure that they know that the money was spent in good ways and in ways that we said it would be spent. But it is challenging. It's very challenging if you, if you don't have those very specific hard targets to go for. Yeah. You know, we, 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 can, we can, it's impossible for us to say, oh, poaching is going to be cut by 20% this year. It, it's, it's impossible because you have, a, you have a new syndicate that comes in and, you know, with the lockdown that we had in South Africa in March last year, <laughs> I mean, we would have exceeded every single target because we didn't lose a single rhino in two months because nobody could get close to the park. You know, so we would have exceeded everybody's targets, but it wouldn't have been a fair target because of factors that we have zero control over. And that's what makes it difficult. I think I've mentioned earlier that there's no manual for this. As we, we, we are learning, I mean, we, we are, I often say it's fortunate and unfortunate in the same breath that we are the world experts in this, but we are literally making up things you know, or learning as we go, even though we are by far the most experienced people in the world doing this, because it's never been on the scale. It's never been, you know, so we have rough predictions that are based on people's behavior and that, you know, behavioral sciences and that kind of stuff. But really, we don't have any models to follow on, on what, what we're looking at next year and what we're looking at the next year. We learn and adapt. We put new things in place and that helps. But still, we've got no models or no sort of baselines to work from. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds really hard. And I'll just yeah. make a, a call to action for anybody listening. If you know of a grant that you think would be a good match for your nonprofit, I would love to get them in touch. So if, every, if anyone listening, if you have like little hairs that are thinking in the back of your head that might be a good fit, because I know that you yeah. said last time that that is a big hurdle for you to try to get over is yeah. to get specific funding because there is no target yeah. number there isn't like yeah. we need to restore this many acres of land that is our project yeah. like that that's not yeah. but but what you're doing is still just as vitally important as all of those other yeah. so just as yeah. a collective community we yeah. we'll, we'll come together we'll, we'll find a way for yeah. sure um, even i mean uh, brook even companies if a company wants to assist us we work with a, I think, uh, the, the Players Philanthropic Fund in, in Maryland. 
So any donations we can give you to the 5013 certificates and all those kind of things. So the tax benefits and things are there. We work, like I said, we work very hard on our admin side to ensure that there's transparency and that it's easy for people to, to assist us if they want to. So even companies that feel that they might want to help us, we can assist them with those kind of things. But any help, I mean, there's a good example of a little girl here by us. She was six and she started selling lollipops, homemade lollipops. And I think it took her three years, but she made enough money to buy one of the canines, one of the dogs. Wow, um, really? And uh, you'll, you'll be you'll be surprised, but it, one of those dogs is is about fifteen thousand dollars after it's trained. So it's expensive stuff, and then the medical to keep it going is just as expensive. You know, they do incredible work. They're just phenomenal. Surprisingly enough, I mean, it's a whole different check, but they they do more for us than what drones and technology can ever do. They catch more poachers than what we do with any technology. Is our dogs. And they, they're just phenomenal, phenomenal animals. Mm, that is so funny you bring that up. I just had a mini series on conservation dogs. And yeah. I had Dogs for Wildlife on and they train anti-poaching dogs. And so that's that was perfect timing to go through that because, yeah, going through the whole process of what it takes to get one of these dogs ready and into the field. And also, too, Kayla, she does canine conservation detection work. And saying that, like, one of the beautiful things about dogs is that they don't have to stop working at night. Like the scent doesn't just magically disappear when our eyeballs don't work anymore. You know, they can still smell whatever. They can still track those poachers. They can still do all of those things at night. So I'm loving that this dog stuff keeps getting brought up too as a very useful tool in conservation. Mm -hmm. And I can see how they'd be very useful in in your line of work as well. Yeah. If you ever get a chance, you must read up about the pack dogs that South African National Parks is using now. Mm, um, yeah. It's a, it's a pack of dogs that, that work together. So the Kruger National Park is, is a very tall, well, long, but it's not that wide. And it's wide at its point. It's probably 45 miles, okay, wide. But it's, but it's in the region of about 300 miles long. All right. So those dogs can cross the park in approximately three hours. So if you're a poacher and you try and run, you need to run 45 miles with those dogs chasing you. All right. Now, very interesting. They not attack dogs. They only sniff out. And once they find somebody, they back off. And they're trained to do that because they're so expensive. We can't afford to have one of them shot. There's a different kind of dog that goes and does the attack work or goes and fetches the guy from a thicket or something. Now, very interesting these dogs will keep running until they die. Wow. Until they fall. They actually have to be stopped and replaced. And sometimes if you can't stop them in time, the handlers actually carry drips to rehydrate them fast enough because sometimes they don't want to stop. Once they're in that working mode, it's like, it's ridiculous. You must see these things. They are just amazing. It's, it's phenomenal to see, to see what they can do and, and, you know, and, and they're multi-purpose. They can do that and they sniff endangered species. So they sniff elephant, they sniff pangolin, they sniff rhino horn, and they sniff explosives. You know, so they are like, they're like machines. They are just ridiculously um, awesome creatures. But as I said, I mean, a, a pack like that, you're looking at, at close on sixty, seventy thousand dollars 
or a bag like that. So like per year or? No, that's just to, to have them, to, to actually breed them and train them. And then after that, the, the South African National Parks, just they take ridiculously good care. I mean, the care that those dogs get and the food, it's, it's a specially designed food from hills, I believe. Mm. especially designed for them because of the heat and because of the, the, the extreme conditions and also the dehydration and all, you know, so it's specially designed for them. But, but obviously being like that, it, it costs a fortune to keep up. And, you know, the medicals, they go every six weeks for a medical, whether they need one or not, you know, it's kind of like a, just a general health check and so on. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very sweet to meet some of them. Some of them want to kill you. Is they they trying to actually they trying to actually kill people not kill but you know attack but then you got the sweetest obviously Labradors and, and those kind of things and yeah so so very very sweet dogs very nice yeah mm. it's it's awesome if anybody ever gets there and you see one of the dogs in the pops you know stop and have a look because it's a special special creature yeah wow that's ah. Oh. That is awesome. It's just perfect that just talked with Jack and Kayla about this. And, and it's just, it's yeah. so amazing because it is an emerging thing, like using dogs yeah. in conservation. Yeah. And I hope that more leaders in conservation see the value. Yeah, it might be a little yeah. bit more expensive, but it's an investment in the future. It's an investment in long term. Yeah. How valuable these dogs are in this field and all different yeah. kinds of assets, whether it's detecting whether or not an endangered species is still around in an yeah. area, whether it's it's checking down poachers, it's it's helping crime scenes, it's all of these different things that they can do. Yeah. And they love it. Like it's yeah. there's no complaining. Yeah. I mean maybe they might have um, a bad day here or there, but overall yeah. they're awesome and yeah, they want to do it. I, I want to tell you a little thing that I saw with my own eyes, and I'm going to try and explain it with my hands, all right? So, so first off, we have had drones in the park. And when I say drones, I'm, I literally mean uh, these things are the size of an airplane. It's military drones with the most incredible infrared scanners and things, you know. It, it comes with a, with a shipping container, that's the control room. It, it literally looks like a war plane with the most amazing forward-looking infrared flow cameras you can imagine. So when, they, when these things take off, you must understand that the Kruger National Park is the size of the country of Israel. It's actually about seven square miles bigger than the country of Israel. And there's no roads. So when that thing takes off at night, where do you start looking for a poacher? Which grid do you fly? There's no address or you don't know where that guy is. He can be anywhere at any coordinate. So it ended up being very difficult because the things would pick up animals. An anteal, for example, is built with an exhaust on the top. They bolt it open so that the air goes out. And interestingly enough, that air is very close to a human body temperature. Really? Yes, it's about 36 degrees Celsius. All right. So when you fly over with an infrared camera, you keep seeing all these hundreds of red dots because it's the same temperature as a human. All right. It's not moving, but I mean, how do you pick out a human in that kind of environment? If you know where the human is, 
let's say it's behind the hill, you can send a small drone to just look at the terrain, similar to what the army or what the Marines would do, just to be sure that when you go over, you know what the terrain looks like. But then you know the guys on the other side of the hill. If you didn't know he was there, where must your drone start looking? All right, now, now you have a dog. And I've seen it with my own eyes. So they do the tests on the dog. So they've got a guy running. Now, if you look on a map, he's going north. And he's doing this. He's running in a zigzag. And then he goes round like this. So it's a bloodhound that they're now testing. And instead of following his track, the dog puts its nose in the air, just turns that way and tucks across like that. Wow. For, for, about, two and a half, for about two and a half miles until he got the guy under the bush. It's one of our guys he was testing. He was running to try and see if the dog could catch him in a certain time. So you can't do that with a drone. You can't replace that kind of, you know. So, so the dogs are proving to be just phenomenal, just, just worth the investment over and over and over and over. You know, and of course, I mean, countless times that they save guys' lives and put themselves on the line and... I mean, you just have to go and Google your check. There's one of them that got grabbed by a lion the other day. But fortunately, his handler was there, so he got bitten quite badly, but he survived. You know, he was he was worse for wear for a little while, but he's back on, on good ground and so on. So, you know, they have challenges that's not normal, you know, but amazing animals, just ridiculous. You can't talk enough about them. Mm. And I'm sure since you work pretty much alongside with them. They're almost like coworkers in a sense, like right? Cause you all have the yeah. same goal. They are going after the poacher. Yeah. You are um, as well. Like, so all together, yeah. you're one big team. Yeah. So just to give you an idea, you can imagine, let's, let's say there's a rhino caucus. I'm busy with the rhino caucus. Now in the African bush, now I've got to start looking for a, a bullet casing. Just doing a, a radius of 10 yards, it's like a haystack. So for the hour that I'm busy cutting open the carcass, we often have a dog coming with us and his handler, and all he does is lets the dog go. And the dog runs around everywhere. He picks up tracks and whatever. That dog can pick up where that casing fell two days ago. So even if they picked up the casing, he will, he will mark a spot and, and you know he's, he's smelling cordite, which is a gunpowder. He's smelling it. Even if they picked up that casing, then you know this is where they fired and you can get a trajectory of where they actually shot from. Often they actually find the casings for us, but even if they don't, they, they can indicate to us from which direction the shot was fired and we can make a better picture of how the whole scenario happened. So it's just, it's just awesome. It's ridiculously you know, they, they just make your work a lot easier. Yeah. Wow. It's like the whole, I really like am seeing the image of what this is like for you yeah. at a scene, just like you have this whole team and there's like a dog and it's, it's going off and finding all the things that would be almost impossible for us. And, and just coming all together to save another rhino in the future. Like, unfortunately yeah. this one was lost, but yeah. together as a team, yeah we're going to fight to yeah. for that next yeah. one to not go down. Gosh. Ugh. Mm. I'll let that like sit in for <laughs> a second. You, to, you know, you have to also remember that there's some guys out there that just do ridiculously awesome work. 
you know, ours is important. It's an important cog in the whole system. But the guys that we work with are just amazing, amazingly phenomenal individuals, people that put their lives on the line every single day, you know, and pretty much thankless jobs, you know, thankless. Being a ranger, originally, you have to remember, it's actually a game ranger. In South Africa, that guy studied to be not a botanist, but like an ecologist. His job was to count leopards and, and see if they're healthy and see how many buffaloes are in his territory. And now, because of rhino poaching, you take this guy, you shove an automatic rifle in his hands, and you, you're now making him become 95% paramilitary. His job is no longer counting animals and making sure that the, that the fauna and flora is in good health. His job is now being shot at every day. And the salaries are... There's not money in working in conservation. It's because of the, because they love it, because they love what they do, you know. So it's just a, it's a ridiculous privilege working with these guys. The people are phenomenal. Coming from a corporate environment, which is which is pretty much office politics and all those kind of things, now you're in this environment where you work with these uh, you're flipping awesome people, absolutely amazing people where communication is is essential because if you don't communicate people die you know um, it's just so different it's such a i mean it was a ridiculous learning curve for us when we got into it but it, but it's it's a privilege that we remember it every day yeah wow wow i feel privileged just sitting down and talking with you and just even hearing these stories like i feel so grateful that I even have the opportunity and I've never even met some of these people. Oh gosh, yeah. I can only imagine what it feels like for you just hearing your stories and then hearing what they must go through. Cause you know, when we're in this field, one day might just get online and there's just a news or headline that five plus Rangers were killed in a night because of some gun fight happens over usually wildlife and that's yeah. what these people are doing like they are putting their life on the line i mean and you are as well i mean you're the ones that are going out to track these guys down and whew, man that's real yeah. that is <laughs> that is so real i'm just like i come from the conservation travel side and like the biologist side where i'm like i freaking love lions and i can tell you all kinds of crazy shit about lions but yeah. Man, and I love to go travel and see them and go to Kruger National Park, but gosh, like what I do isn't near close to anything or as intense or and I'm just yeah. like, oh my gosh, I have to deal with somebody who doesn't believe in, cl in climate change. Whoop de doo. It's like you <laughs> God, you're dealing with blood and stuff. Like <laughs> Brooke, you must remember we're very fortunate to do what we do, you know, but it takes everybody. It, it doesn't help you to just save rhinos when the climate's going to go. You know, so regardless of what they do, even even people who, who we, we always say we're in a position to help animals. Even guys who are not in a position to help animals. I mean, if you live in New York City, just doing your part and recycling and everything just counts up. Even the smallest thing done by a million people becomes a very big thing. You know, a million drops makes 10,000 liters. And we always remember that we're just very privileged that we get to work at the end where we do. 
and, and a lot of it was luck. I could have gone that December and ended up washing vehicles or doing some catch-up admin work, you know. It's just, I'm just in a fortunate position, but everybody that makes any effort is making a difference, and that's, that's what you want, you know, no matter how small it is. I could not agree with that more. One of my really good friends, his name is Charles Von Ries, and he's also another podcaster, and he kind of threw that out there on Twitter recently, and I'm not a Twitter person at all. I'm trying. But he, he asked this really great question where it was something along the lines of everybody seems to have a different definition of a conservationist. What is it yeah. for you? And I pretty much came with that same angle you have. It's like, just the tiniest behavior change, which might be a really big behavioral difference for somebody because it's a completely different yeah. way of life. Starting a new habit is very difficult yeah. when we are so stuck in our ways. But just that one little shift could just start a whole cascade of different changes in their life that might become a new completely way of viewing the world just from one slightly change or it might just stay one mm -hmm. change but if they do that for the rest yeah. of their life where i don't know and when they go get a dozen of eggs they go for the carton that's made out of paper versus yeah. the one that's made out of plastic yeah. well let's yeah. say that they have a huge family and every single week they're going through like mm -hmm. two dozen eggs like how much plastic is saved by that one tiny oh, yeah. change yeah, yeah. It is, you know, you know, Brooke, it's sometimes a very odd combination because obviously the guys we work with, there's a, there's a fair amount of testosterone going around and they have to, because they, they're literally soldiers, you know, they have to, they can't be like worried about their nails and all kinds of stuff, you know, there's no time for that. But amazingly enough, all of them are the most humble people that you could possibly imagine. It, it it always amazes me, you know. There is like there's a there's there's a lot of testosterone going around, you know, straight about it. But but the humility, you know, and there's no such thing as this is my world and I'm not allowing anybody in to help. It's refreshing, you know, coming from a corporate world. It's refreshing to be around these people because it's it's like a big family. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that they that they know what, what each of us goes through. You know, how difficult it is for your wife not to know whether you're not going to come back at night. The dangers that you face out there, it's, it's incredibly hard work. It's not an office job. I mean, once again, coming from IT, being a guy sitting behind a computer to having to walk 20 miles a day in, in that heat and in the bush where you've got a you you can't let your guard down because there's a there might be a line right here, you know. And it's not a sort of maybe, they're everywhere. The Kruger National Park has lines and things everywhere. You can't let your guard down, especially if you're looking after people. I mean, the the rangers, those guys go out two weeks at a time, they operate at night, they walk during the night. You've got to be so alert. And then you've gone for two weeks where you have no contact with your family. Your wife and kids don't know whether you're going to come back. It's a dangerous job. But these guys are just happy and it's just amazing. It's, it's a privilege to work with them. It's, it's a culture that I wish more people could get into because it's, it's just amazing. It's just not the corporate world, you know, not the cutthroat sort of this is mine and stay out of it kind of world, you know, so... 
yeah, I wish more people could, could get into it. I completely agree. I keep saying to everybody as the conservation community is one of the best in the world. Uh, I don't even know how to put it. We're all in it for the greater good. We are all in it yeah. because we want to be. We're all in it because we want to see a better planet for everybody. Because big cats are my thing. I love them to death. But the only way to keep them alive and healthy is to make sure that people prosper. And if people yeah. prosper, then they, they don't have any reason to poach yeah. that lion and get that leopard skin. They don't have mm. the reason to kill that pangolin. They don't have a reason to yeah. take yeah. out rhino because they're prospering in another mm. way. And so, yeah, yeah, just always remembering that human piece <laughs> is vital in all of it. Yeah, uh, you know what, Brooke? Um, we appreciate any help that people give us. You know, like I say, some guys can give you $2. Some companies can give you $2,000. Anything helps us, you know, like we say, any little, little thing. The only thing I can promise your listeners is that, that the stuff that we do, it's real, but this is, this is as real as it gets. And, and we do great effort. They're welcome to go and have a look at our website, especially our, our bigger donors. Like I said, we actually want you to come out and see what we do, our education projects, our, the work that we do in the field just to realize that you and your contribution is making a real difference. And that's all it's about is to make a real difference where it counts. You know, as hard as it may be, we obviously take the, the harder parts of the job, the more things that are closer to our hearts and, and we see some of the gruesome stuff. But, but please, if anybody can help us, it would be so much appreciated and, and, and nothing is, is too little or too... You know, Brooke, we, we will gladly do a talk at your school because if you introduce us to people at your school, it gives us an opportunity to bring the message across to other people, to show them what goes on, what's really happening out there. And education is as much as money is or financial thing. Educating people is, is as important, you know. So by all means, guys are welcome to contact me. The contact details are on our website. We, I mean, we do talks ranging from four-year-olds right through to old-age homes and companies, whatever in the middle. Obviously, we will not show gory, gruesome dead rhinos to four-year-olds. But you tell us how far or how much you want us to to show, and we'll have a chat to you, to your class, whatever, anything. We're there to bring the message across, and that's that's all we can ask for. That's all we can ask for. Mm. Well, I think that is the perfect way to end this, Andre. Yeah. I will make sure that those contact details are posted everywhere. And as I always say, if anyone reaches out to me, I will always make sure they get in contact with you. So we're all in this together. Yeah. And I cannot thank you enough for the amazing work that you do to keep rhinos on this planet. No, it's actually our privilege. We don't want to say it's a pleasure. It is a pleasure. But it's our pleasure, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just amazing. You and I talked during the week or last week, and I actually want to put out a challenge. I understand that you have a town, a local town in Colorado called Rhino that has a festival every year. And we would love to join you guys. We would love to go there and maybe spend the week with you, have a few talks to people there to show them exactly what we did or what we do, 
how we do it, um, show them how we do the forensics and what's involved in it, and have a chat to you guys. So uh, maybe next year with uh, COVID having run its course, hopefully, and we're able to travel, <laughs> maybe we can pop by and say hi to you guys and see if we can educate a few people there firsthand about what we do. Mm-hmm. So there's a challenge, guys, from Rhino, if they hear this. Um, no, but it's been a pleasure, really. It's nice to talk to girls like you, guys like you. It's been fun. It's really, really a, a privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andre. Can't wait to get this out. Okay, cool. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.